Welcome to Season 7 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. It's wonderful to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding our episodes useful, so please take the time to subscribe, share the episodes and leave some feedback. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal speaking people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording. I pay respects to the elders past and present of the Darawal Nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people that are listening to this. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Today's episode is with the brilliant Catherine Morgan. She is a passionate educator who now works as the Capacity Improvement Advisor for the Teaching School Hubs Council. Catherine is a former primary deputy head teacher and was the Director of Professional Development. Having previously worked at Ambition Institute as the Associate Dean of Learning Design and the Teacher Development Trust as the Head of Leadership Development, Catherine is passionate about working in the field of teacher and leader education. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Catherine Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me today. Where are you phoning in from? Hi, Matthew. It's great to be with you. I'm actually phoning in from Swansea in South Wales. Um, So it's a glorious day here. The sun is streaming through the balcony window and uh, feeling definitely some summer vibes. Amazing. Well, it's so lovely to see the sunshine. Uh, We have been experiencing a lot of rain this last week and some pretty treacherous floods over in Sydney. So it's it's nice to see uh, the sunshine coming through your window. there's nothing like uh, England in the summer. It's a, it's a beautiful place to be. I'm sure you agree. Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I saw some of the, the floods. It's uh, not, it hasn't looked like a very good week for you guys, but hopefully um, everybody's okay. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty treacherous. Um, and like I said, we are really fortunate because we live in quite um, uh, high areas. So we're quite high above sea level, but uh, definitely some people are not as as fortunate. I think people assume that in Australia it's always uh, sunshine and 38 degrees and it's definitely not the case but uh, yeah it's uh, yeah, like I said lovely to see that sunshine uh, in the background. Uh, quite possibly the most uh, important question for our discussion, uh, what is your coffee order? Oh good question, so definitely a black Americano. Okay black coffee that's interesting yeah. Yeah yeah just give it to me straight and lots of it. <laughs> Do you think uh, your coffee choice says something uh, about your personality? Oh that's a really good question. Um, well I mean it might suggest that I'm pretty intense but I don't know if people <laughs> would necessarily agree with that. I think probably uh, I just quite like I have two cups of coffee a day uh, always black <laughs> filter coffee but if I'm going to um to get coffee from coffee house it's always yeah black americano yeah. just need that pick <laughs> fantastic there's there's no judgment here we've had a whole range of uh, <laughs> of different coffee orders um is there a book that you've recently read uh, that has caused you to uh rethink things in your life 
Um, so I recently read, well, in fact, last year I read Phosphorescence by Julia Baird, and that was absolutely amazing. Um, a really powerful book about how we view nature and our well-being. Um, I think in terms of education books, I'm actually rereading Graham Nettles' Hidden Lives of Learners and um, also Vivian Robinson's Re Reduce Change to Increase Improvement. Um, I read them a couple of years ago, but I'm currently in the middle of my uh, master's dissertation. So drawing upon some of their insights, two really powerful books that I think help us to realise where we should be placing our efforts, basically, to maximise that impact for students. Yeah, that's so important. I uh, recently had Professor Viv Vivian Robinson on the podcast and I was um, I was terrified. Blown away. <laughs> uh, blown away, terrified. Uh, but she is um, a, a just so lovely. Um, and it's yes. strange, I think, when you've grown up reading people's books to then see them on the other side of a Zoom call. Uh, but uh, she she's lovely. And I think her work um, really... Um, differentiating between uh, a change and improvement is, is, is so important um, and it's really given me a lot to think about um, as I work with my teams in my classroom and uh, so you're rereading that um, in the hope uh, that you, you see, hope to see it through a different lens or what, what are you getting hoping to get out of that? Uh, really good question. So I'm currently studying um, a master's in educational leadership and I'm really keen uh, to focus on um, the professional conversations that school leaders have to help to better understand individual theories of action. So I'm also really interested in the work of um, Argaris and Shern, who I think um, Vivian uh, was actually, I mean, I'm probably getting this wrong, but I'm sure that she in some capacity they were, I think Chris Argus was her perhaps um, professor, either way has really significantly influenced her work. And I'm particularly interested in how we can use tools such as the ladder of inference to better understand how quickly we uh, jump to conclusions in conversations with our colleagues, especially when trying to identify and diagnose perhaps barriers to teaching and learning. Um, and I think that's been really powerful. So I'm currently in my dissertation trying to understand essentially how we can really put this into practice so I think that Vivian's work is not only interesting from a theoretical perspective research perspective but she also gives very tangible actions that can be applied Absolutely. in practice and that's what I'm keen to explore. Yeah I, I couldn't agree more and that was one of the things that really drew me uh, to Vivian's work was just how practical it was and I think sometimes there's a um, in my experience anyway there seems to be a, a, a disengagement between um, theory and practice and I always yeah. ask myself what is this going to look like tomorrow when I stand in front of 28 kids um, how am I going to implement this and Vivian's work is is so practical um, and uh, yeah, really 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 useful so uh, Professor Robinson if you're listening to this uh, please uh, reach out and say hi you're always uh, always welcome uh, for a chat um, what are you most grateful for from your parents another personal question um, that is a really good question. So my parents, um, definitely very humble people. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd say so humility and kindness. Um, they're the kind of people that my friends always refer to as storybook parents. My dad sadly passed away in 2015. Uh, but he was a medical physicist, really, you know, uh, very successful in his career, but you would never have realized. And my mum was also a teacher and again, just really humble um, and the type of people that I think always encouraged my sisters and I to make sure that we 
put others first, obviously not to the detriment of ourselves, but try and strike that balance that we're not always thinking what's in it for me, what can I get? And I think if we look across the globe at the moment, um, we're in a situation where societies uh, perhaps have got into that mindset where it's about individual um, success. And I think we need to get much more into that space where we work collectively together, not just as individual um, countries, but, you know, as a united world, because we're certainly having some challenges at the moment that require us to stand together and unite such as, you know, we could mention climate change, but that's a whole other story and the war in Ukraine. So yeah, I think they definitely have instilled a sense of humility, kindness, but also recognizing that the the whole, the we is is really important. Yeah. And we'll definitely get into that um, a little later in terms of um, how we build some of those uh, professional networks and and, and the ladder of influence and so on and so forth. But I was just interested in um, how you think your upbringing has impacted the way that you approach uh, teaching. Uh, you talked a little bit about sort of kindness and compassion and so on and so forth, but is there any other ways that you think um, has really had an impact in how you approach uh, teaching? So um, I'm originally a primary school teacher um, and I think that much of the work that I did um, in the classroom was focusing upon how we can meet students uh, from their starting points mm-hmm. and really recognise that it's really important to have um, goals, high aspirations, but actually we are all individuals at the end of the day. Um, And it's important to recognize that, you know, learning's not linear, that there isn't just one way of doing it. Um, And I think in terms of my parents, um, I'm the youngest of uh, three, and I definitely was the type of learner that needed to um, have some compassion when things were being explained to me. So my sisters would get things, grasp things really quickly. I definitely needed an explanation two or three times. My parents were very patient. Um, And I think as a teacher, I always tried to be very patient. And also then as a middle and senior leadership, because uh, we, you know, work's busy, whatever career you're involved in, it's fair to say that working life is busy. It's very easy for us to get caught up in the things we need to do, we have to do, and we can then perhaps speak to people in a way that, you know, can be quite rushed because we've got a million things that we just need to get done. But I think that if we apply some patience to the work that we do, whether that's teaching or or leading groups of teachers, then it enables us to recognise that we're all trying to do our best work. I fundamentally believe that we all get up in the morning and we want to do a good job sometimes we might be tired sometimes other stuff might be going on but ultimately I I really don't believe that anybody gets up and thinks I'm gonna be really rubbish in my work today so I think patience compassion and definitely humility once again you know we don't know it all you can learn lots of things from your colleagues lots of things from children students in the classroom so just really have that thirst for learning uh and enjoy learning with and from other people yeah i think that's i think that's so true i've got a real soft spot for primary school educators i think we are a um we're an interesting breed and a really special there's something about those formative years i think of of any child schooling and um i think uh, compassion and caring are such um, fundamental qualities uh, for that. Um, is there a teacher uh, that has had an impact in your life, positive impact in your life? Well, 
Oh, that's a really good question. I haven't thought about that for a while. I think there's probably um, two standout teachers for me, one in primary and she was called Mrs. Hill. Um, I moved up from Swansea to England and uh, I think I was entering year three and she was just a really um, compassionate, caring teacher who definitely wanted to ensure that we all learned as much as we could and that we were really successful in our learning but I think she worked really hard to ensure that the environment in the classroom was one where we could all thrive and flourish irrespective once again of our starting points there's definitely a theme there um and it wasn't that I didn't feel challenged um but I think she led with compassion and understanding and patience Uh, which enabled us all to challenge ourselves uh, and not sort of wait for somebody else to push us forward. Um, So she definitely stands out. She was a music teacher as well, phenomenal piano player um, and just a really lovely lady. And I was fortunate to have her for two years when I was in Upper Junior. So she definitely stands out for me. And I think then in secondary school, um, my food technology teacher, actually, Mrs. Cox. Um, And once again, probably because she had... um, this really lovely balance of perhaps more traditional techniques of teaching complemented with some more progressive um, approaches. And I think is a really good example of where it's not either or that you can, you know, develop your craft and practice of teaching in a way that draws upon uh, more traditional approaches, like yeah. direct instruction, for example, but does so then in a way that once again, enables students to thrive and flourish from their starting point they're not dragged up to a certain grade or a certain level um they're actually able to to achieve because they feel that once again that classroom environment is one where they can be successful and she was really good at making I think all of us feel that it wasn't about judgment that it was always about understanding and and yeah she was uh, she had quite a coaching approach but then I suppose you know the domain of food technology really lended itself to, to more of a coping approach yeah that that's really interesting and have you ever had a chance to uh to thank mrs hill or mrs cox no um unfortunately i haven't seen them since i left uh primary and, and secondary school but i think it is really fair to say that teachers do shape and change lives i know that sometimes you can see um you know, like an Instagram image or something from Pinterest that has a cheesy quote about teachers changing people's lives. But actually, it's really not cheesy. It's the truth. I think that all of us, the vast majority of us will be able to speak positively about school. And if we can't because of experiences, there'll always be a teacher, there'll always be someone that you're able to talk about fondly. And it's often those teachers who really believe in you that stand out as people who've helped to shape your life. Yeah, it's so important. And um, so many people that I've interviewed have talked about their year three or year four teacher. I don't know what it is about if I've just, if it's just a coincidence or if it's something about those formative years in year three and four. I know my uh, teacher, Mrs. Taylor Jones, who I had the privilege of um, having on the podcast a little while ago, um, was uh, my teacher in year three, then once again in year five. And there was something about her and something about those really formative years for me in the Long Road Primary School in Belper near Nottingham. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but I love the idea that um, students don't remember necessarily what we taught them, but they remember how we made them feel as educators. I have no idea what Mrs. Jones taught me. 
Um, I don't know what happened in that year. I'm sure she did a great job. Um, but what I remembered was uh, when I needed her, I could go and speak to her. I know that I felt valued and cared for in that classroom. And I'm sure she did that for every other student in that class and so many students since. But do you think there's something really special about those formative years? Um, it's probably an obvious question, uh, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts on those sort of early, early years of schooling? Yeah, so I absolutely do. I mean, being a primary school teacher by trade, um, I feel that actually there is a significant need for us in England in particular to really invest more in the early years, for example. Um, I think the early years is absolutely fundamental to creating that solid platform for children then to thrive in the primary um, pr primary. Um, age group and I think then when you get to years three and four you're probably at that stage where you're becoming much more independent in your learning but that absolutely hinges upon that classroom environment and the way in which you feel safe to be able to take risks in your learning without fear of being told off or perhaps being judged and I think that my reason for reading Graham Nuttall's Hidden Lives of Learners again was because I was, you know, really interested in that peer to peer environment, that hidden, that hidden uh, environment that takes place in the classroom and then trying to understand that through the lens of teachers. So um, how there's often probably within a school the hidden lives of teachers um, and that could take place in the staff room if people still go to staff rooms. Um, but certainly in conversations that teachers have, I think that perhaps similar principles apply there. And so back to your question, you know, the importance of, of primary, I think, really highlights that that's the stage where we need to develop the skills and the self-belief within children that they actually can achieve, that they are able to, um, you know, achieve their goals. But also it's about instilling that love of learning. Primary enables us to cover, you know, a huge curriculum, that has its challenges, obviously, with yeah. time and being able to um, cover anything in significant debt. But nevertheless, you would hope that we're starting to um, set the scene for children to become passionate about specific subjects. And that then is the platform that enables them to go on to secondary. I think if your primary schooling doesn't do that for you, then secondary can become quite a challenge because it's so much more fast paced. Your peers then are potentially in, you know, varying degrees of, um, they have varying degrees of starting points. Yeah. And I think sometimes you can quickly get left behind. Um, so yeah, I think early years in particular and primary really, really important to enable success then in secondary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when someone asks, what do you do now? Uh, how how do you respond to that? Because you seem like you've got a lot of things happening. So how do you how do you answer that question? Uh, so I tend to respond with I work in education, and then I follow it up with I was a primary school teacher for seventeen years, um, and in that time was class teacher, um, middle leader, and senior leader, and I uh, then went on to become a trust leader for professional learning development, and that's where. I decided that I didn't want to go into headship or certainly not, not at the moment that I was really keen and how we keen to understand better understand how we can develop teaching teachers expertise leadership expertise um, 
What type of culture and environment do we need in schools for teachers to really thrive and flourish, for them to feel that workload and well-being isn't impeding their ability to be able to teach in the classroom? So I then went on to work for two really well-known education charities in England. So the first one is Ambition Institute, and then I went to the Teacher Development Trust. Both gave me the opportunity to better understand Um, teacher education, leadership education. The TDT in particular helped me to really understand some of those core ingredients for uh, effective school cultures. And I'm now working for the um, National Teaching School Hub Council. Um, So we are a network of 87 teaching school hubs and we work closely with the Department for Education and we implement their national professional um, development programmes for teachers and leaders. So now able to be in a very fortunate position to hopefully have an impact across the whole of the country, which is a huge privilege. Um, and my role specifically works with hub leaders to ensure they have the capability, capacity um, to be able to fulfill their roles as essentially delivering uh professional development that's designed by other people, but also then including programs that they've internally designed based on their need analysis of their local area and the types of challenges that school uh, teachers and leaders are facing in particular regions across England. Amazing. I, I thought I was uh, busy, uh, but clearly uh, clearly not. Um, but that that just sounds so interesting. And, and would you mind just touching uh, sort of briefly on sort of the importance of Uh, building those professional networks uh, across schools because I know um, uh, in Australia that's something that we are really focusing on is that collaborative practice and that sharing of expertise. Um, Why um, are professional learning networks so crucial uh, to be establishing for our teachers? So I absolutely uh, think that um, professional networks are fundamental to the success of any education sector. Um, but I think that the challenge is in, is in ensuring that it's true collaboration, that, uh, that it isn't just the illusion of collaboration where we all get together in a room and we listen to things at the same time, listen to messages, perhaps uh, discuss things collectively and then go off and think, right, we've collaborated. There's so yeah. much more to uh, the skill and the art and the craft of collaboration. And I think that this comes back to Vivian Robinson's work. So we're going full circle here in how we collaborate with colleagues from across the sector and understand their starting points, individual theories of action. So what are those underlying values and beliefs that that, helped them want to go into teaching in the first place or into leadership positions? How can we understand where we're heading in terms of the difference that we want to make so that we are collectively uh, working together for one shared uh, common goal? And I think the problem with collaboration is that we often just think getting in the room together is enough, but there is so much more psychology uh, that that, that needs to be considered to ensure that when we do um, have teachers and leaders collaborating, perhaps across regions, across a country, we're doing so in a way that really maximizes the impact of that both in terms of them as individuals but also then as a collective group and I think that's where really important concepts such as trust come into play the importance of professional conversations more broadly Um, I think for me I've progressed in my career in a certain direction because I've been very curious. I've put myself out there, joined a variety of different networks, constantly tried to challenge myself, sort out people who I've perhaps thought are 
you know, certain experts in, in, in aspects of education that I'm not and that I can learn from. Yeah. And I think that when you collaborate with others, you need to recognize that it's not, it shouldn't be all rosy and plain sailing. You absolutely want to find peers who you can collaborate with, who can challenge your views, challenge your thinking. That's where, again, Robinson's challenging the theories of action, understanding, but doing so in a way that really enables people to open up so we're not we're not then I guess it's that psychological safety piece isn't it and Amy Edmondson's work around creating those conditions where we are able to speak candidly about perhaps teaching or leadership challenges or barriers that we're facing within our community within local schools in a way that we're not going to feel that we're going to be judged by anybody and that actually that then will be something that can be collectively um worked on to try and find possible solutions so long-winded answer absolutely collaboration is key but I think we underestimate how challenging really effective collaboration is you only have to look at the governments across the world (laughs) to see at the moment you know there's all sorts of all sorts of challenges about collaboration and I think we often have the illusion of inclusion and we pay lip service to it and I think we need much more candor and really need to look at creating those foundations for people to speak honestly and openly. What are some of the challenges with building some of those professional networks across schools and school districts? So I think that um, time will always be one of our biggest challenges. Um, And I think we need to approach building professional networks in a way that takes into consideration, similarly to taking children's starting points in the classroom into consideration, taking teachers and leaders um, context into consideration. So looking at networks, thinking about the geography, the location, the time, um, how we can follow up and follow through with things that have been discussed. And I think that as a school leader, certainly when I was a deputy head and certainly when I was working across multiple schools, um, we worked hard to make sure that time wasn't a barrier that people put forward as a reason as to why they couldn't engage. So we worked really smartly to try and find time within the the working day um, to free up time for teachers to collaborate in the working day so that collaboration wasn't always something that was seen as happening before school or after school or in, you know, or at the weekend. Actually, this was about saying to the team, look, we really value collaboration and we really value your time. So we've looked at the timetable and we've been quite innovative in the way that we can free up um, certain gaps within people's timetables to get groups of teachers and leaders collaborating. And that was really powerful because actually... I think everybody would want to collaborate with other people, the vast majority would, but then they know that they have to pay the price somewhere and it's inevitably their time and time gets squeezed. And we know that collaboration can have a significant impact, but it's something that's really hard to do well. And you could argue that poor collaboration is actually worse than no collaboration at all, because those busy teachers and leaders could have used that time in more impactful ways. So it isn't enough to just say, I'm gonna have a collaborative network and we're gonna meet at this time and make the decision. I think consultation with those who are involved that you want to bring together is really important. And then if anything, the pandemic has taught us that we can be quite innovative with using technology. You know, you and I are speaking to each other in different countries. Um, There's lots of ways now that we can collaborate with one another, utilizing technology and making sure that time doesn't remain that biggest challenge. Yeah, that's so important. I think one of the 
one of the great things to come out of this uh, pandemic is that understanding that we can actually pivot and we can do things differently. And I, I'm still amazed that I can speak to somebody for free on the other side of the world um, and look yeah. at their face. I think it, it's amazing. And um, I know for me, um, that sort of sharing of expertise, not only across school districts in Australia, but that global sharing has been something that's been really powerful to me and, and understanding that um, I'm not the only one that has the questions that I have. There are other people that yeah. are wrestling with this as well. And um, I think, yeah, that's, that's incredibly important. And how do we start to build, uh, you talked a little bit about trust and obviously uh, Amy Edmondson's work about um, psychological safety, but how do we begin to start to build that trust across professional networks? Oh, that's such a great question, because I think for me at the moment, we are blessed with so much research and evidence into not just uh, where we should be placing our times, uh, where we should be placing our time and effort in terms of developing the craft and expertise of teaching and school leadership, yeah. um, but also we're blessed with research and evidence into organisational development. So Amy Edmondson's work, Psychological mm -hmm. Safety Springs to Mind, I think Brick and Schneider's work around relational trust really powerful Helen Timpany Helen Timpany did a fantastic synthesis from I think 2015 into professional conversations in schools and all of this body of research and evidence is really powerful but it's only going to have its intended impact if we think about really practical tangible ways that we can then put it into into action in schools um, and in, in in collaboratives and I think that in terms of psychological safety, it's really important to recognize that it takes time, that we don't want to just use it as a buzzword and pay lip service to it and say, you know, psychological safety is really important to us, but then do the opposite of yeah. what uh, the sort of active ingredients, if you like, of psychological safety. Yeah. And so modeling behaviors, uh, making sure that communication, transparency is as good as it possibly can be. I just want to sort of... Uh, you know pivot if you like on on communication I think more often than not so much that happens in any organization and in any sector whether that's education um, or, or you know the world of business uh, is influenced by communication I think that it's the toughest nut to crack I think we underestimate um, just how important it is I think nine times out of ten when somebody leaves their job it's often because you can sort of pull those uh pull those strings and end up coming back to communication as either being a block or a barrier yeah. to them doing the work that they um they do and i think in a collaboration in a collaborative you really want to make sure that communication is transparent that people are aware of the values of the group um and these values aren't just thrust upon people there's nothing worse than school saying these are our values this is our motto this is our vision statement this is our mission and you realize that there's been the illusion of consultation maybe teachers leaders have all got together in a room and people think that there's been that codification and agreement that these are these are our values but because leaders are often really busy we pay lip service to it again we're back to robinson bypass versus engagement and we don't even scratch the surface so those values those behaviors whether it's a whole school whether it's a network or a collaborative don't then end up being uh yeah live they're not actually values in use they're espoused and that's what happens so much in, in school environments so 
we really need to make sure that we draw upon research and evidence, but we do so in a way that doesn't just pay lip service to it. We think, what are the fundamental aspects of this research and evidence? What's currently happening in this collaborative or this school or organization? What steps need to be put in place to recognize that we're starting from point A, but we want to get to point C. It's not going to happen overnight. So implementing that research and evidence is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. I just wondering if you would mind taking us back to that decision um, a little while ago to leave uh, the classroom and move outside of schools. Was that a difficult decision? And is there anything that you miss about being inside the classroom or inside schools? So it definitely was a difficult decision um, because I went into education to teach, to be in the classroom to work with students. Um, yeah. My The schools that I'd worked in, um, I worked in a total of four different um, primary schools and then worked across a multi-academy trust, so working with six schools. Um, and they were all um, in areas, communities that really de deserved um, some nourishment, some nurturing, I should say, rather than nourishment. Um, and absolutely loved the work that I did. And I had to make a choice uh, when thinking about the impact and the difference I wanted to make. And I was always really interested in evidence and research. Um, I was fortunate to work for a school leader in my second school who was very keen to make sure that we didn't just follow traditional methods of teaching because they'd always been done that way. She was really keen to be innovative, to really try and maximize the impact of our teaching craft. And I soon realized that actually I can have an impact on a class of students, but for me to really make the difference that I wanted to, I needed to have an impact on teachers and leaders because they then would have an impact on, you know, hundreds of thousands of classrooms. And I think that professional development should never just be a nice to have. It's absolutely a fundamental entitlement for teachers and leaders to make sure that they have the knowledge and expertise to be as effective as they can be in the classroom. And I realized that actually I needed to step away from the classroom to better understand effective professional development design, delivery, evaluation, so that I could work with teachers and leaders and try and maximize and cascade that impact across a much larger area. Um, but yeah, definitely a challenge to make that decision. Yeah, I, uh, a lot of people that I've spoken to that have made um, transitions like that have said it's one of the most challenging ones to make because you go into a, um, a career for a certain thing and then to have to pivot is, uh, is really difficult. So do you miss the interactions with kids or do you feel like you uh, get enough of that in your role? Definitely miss the interaction with, um, yeah, children um, and students. I mean, I think that there's something just so powerful about going into a classroom of yeah. 30, 34 children who are absolutely hanging on your every word. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that might be indicative of primary, but I'm sure it's the same in secondary as well. I think similarly to my statement about uh, all of us going in, you know, getting up in the morning and wanting to do a good job. I think that ch children, uh, young people get up in the morning and they want to enjoy school, whether that's primary or secondary. I don't think anybody goes thinking, I really want to hate school today. And I think that there is nothing more powerful than going into that classroom and just being able to learn from children's ideas, the way that they view the world. I think that 
uh, Ken Robinson's work around creativity and schooling was really powerful. And um, I remember listening to his TED talk many, many years ago yeah. um, about how creativity can become squeezed out of adults. And actually, if we look at the creative, um, the creativity of children and, and, and young people, there is really something to be admired, nurtured and protected. And I know that I, despite having perhaps sometimes really long days and, you know, lots of marking and things to do, would always go home with a smile on my face because of something that someone in my class said about how they were approaching their learning or just something that had interested them. And I think that's where the magic is. Yeah. Being able to work in an environment where there isn't a ceiling on ideas, mm. on creative thinking. And I think that for adults, we've become so entrenched in set parameters in the way that we approach our work. Yeah. There's a lot that we can learn from children and young people. Yeah, absolutely. Um were there any days uh, when you're in the classroom that you thought about giving up? Um, any really challenging moments or have you always been someone who uh, is really optimistic and hopeful? Um, I think there were many, many yeah. times where yeah. I thought, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I want to give up. I know that when I was um, doing my initial teacher training, um, had some really challenging placements, um, definitely yeah felt like perhaps this wasn't for me managed to complete my teacher training and um then went into my first year my nqt year as it was called then um in a school that was on the brink really of special measures in terms of ofsted so that's you know that's the grading where ofsted come in and say this school needs significant improvement and um yeah, special measures are definitely a challenging place to be. And my NQT year was really hard. Um, we lost the next door classroom teacher. I ended up with two classes merged together and a supply, a series of supply teachers. And again, thought, I can't do this, I can't do this. But I think that's a time where my parents really helped me because I was living at home at the time. And they really helped me to remember that. I think there's a danger for teachers to feel like we have to know it all and be able to do it straight away. And we mustn't under underestimate just how complex and challenging it is to develop the, the craft of teaching. Expertise takes time. Um, different subject areas in primary require us to continually be learning, updating our subject knowledge, but also our pedagogy and practice. And so I think that there are absolutely lots of times that stand out for me where I thought I can't do this. Um, but then you think about your children in your class, the difference you want to make. And I think that's why it's so important to be kind to yourself, to seek support from your colleagues, from your peers in school, and to talk to people openly. We come back to that so psychological safety piece in a way that you can say, I'm actually finding this really challenging. I've got a group of students and for whatever reasons doesn't matter what I'm trying I just don't feel like I'm moving them on in their learning and just being really open and transparent about it but I think unfortunately in the English education sector people have been so fearful of high stakes accountability and people being in trouble for not meeting targets that actually we've been fearful of sharing perhaps when we found you know things to be challenging and and yeah so we're fortunate that we're hopefully coming out of that now in the English education sector and moving much towards uh, moving towards a much more um, compassionate uh, approach to teacher development. But I think that there's you know still significant work to do.
You mentioned uh, before about the importance of uh, continually learning. Um, is there anything that you have sort of changed your mind um, about in terms of education or a, a, an assumption that you've had to um, revisit? That's a really good question. So when I think back to um, my early years as a classroom teacher, I definitely was swayed by education fads, by a whole range of different tricks and things that we would do in the classroom, you know, uh, thinking, yes, it's about engagement. It's about having the children really engaged. And, you know, I think that's where, again, Graham Nuttall's work, Hidden Lives of Learners, is just so powerful because children can be engaged. They're not necessarily learning. It's actually, you know, a, a poor proxy for learning in many respects. And I think that I look back and cringe about the number of things that I did, thinking about brain gym, for example. Um, but also, yeah, there were definitely things where I actually feel really anxious that I probably wasted a lot of children's learning time doing things. I had the best of intentions, but now research and evidence would suggest that actually it really was a waste of time. Um, but I think that, you know, we can't be too hard on ourselves because, we all do these things with the best of intentions come back to that piece about everybody wanting to do a good job um but yeah I think that I look back now and um I, I do cringe about some of the some of the the things I did as a classroom teacher yeah I remember feeling so disheartened um because I used to see on I think it was my space at the time um I used to see these pictures of these wonderful classrooms and these things that people were doing and I would go into my classroom and there'd be a patch on the ground where a kid vomited a few days ago and a sandwich squashed into a computer. And I just felt so inadequate. Um, and um, yeah, I think I, I'm definitely guilty of jumping on educational fads and educational trends. And also, I guess, not giving myself the, the credit and the time to refine my craft uh, because it can mm -hmm. be kind of daunting when you're See, and people only, it's like in any sort of social media, people only post their highlights. No one ever says, I've had a shocking day with my class today and I'm feeling like I should resign. Um, exactly. People only, yeah, people only post the good things. And it's really difficult, I think, to get a, a well-rounded perspective of what happens in classrooms if you're just yeah, following trends and things. Um, I couldn't agree more. And I think ed Edu Twitter, for example, is a really great network, place to share resources and ideas, but there definitely uh, is a tendency to just share the good things, the good bits. And it's so easy sometimes to look at it and think, how have they got the time to do that? Or, you know, yeah. why can't I find the time to do X, Y, and Z? Um, yeah. I think classroom displays was definitely an area that I probably wasted too much time. Um, I remember doing some really elaborate displays really wanted that really wanted that um there's the sort of visual look of the classroom to be as good as it could be and I just look back now and think oh gosh that was probably really distracting to the children's learning in terms of their attention um but everything in moderation isn't it and it's just about a balance yeah I remember one of my favorite lessons was when all the computers failed um uh, nothing worked the kids were going crazy but then I took out some butcher's paper and post-it notes and the kids just had a great time. And I think um, it's that whole, when the, when the bell rings, the kids are disappointed to go to recess and lunch. It was really lovely. Yeah. And it was just a nice reminder that 
even though technology and wonderful displays and beautiful learning spaces are important and they're valuable, um, it's not the thing that's going to make a difference. The interactions that teachers have with their students and that feeling of safety and security is, is the most important. And it was, just a, it was just a nice reminder that sometimes some of those spur of the moment things uh, are the most memorable. And also the times that you spend hours and hours and hours planning and things don't go to plan, it's, it's okay. It's going to be all right. There will be another day. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I've had many of those moments. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just wondering um, what it's been like um, over in the UK um, with the COVID-19 pandemic and how you think that has uh, impacted schools and also what implications do you think that has as we consider new models for professional learning? Um, so I think oh, that... Sorry. No, that's okay. I think that across the globe... Um, everybody's been significantly affected by the pandemic. I think schools have done a tremendous job in trying to support home learning in a variety of different contexts, challenging contexts. Um, and I think that there, whilst there were a lot of challenges, um, there are, there are also some successes that we shouldn't just dismiss and stop doing now because uh, we're technically moving out of a pandemic. And I say moving out because I know that COVID is still around and we don't want to speak too soon. I think what it did do was emphasize that we are fortunate to have um, technology in a way now that can help to complement professional learning to ensure that geography isn't preventing um, colleagues from collaborating and working together from across the country. We're much more uh, willing, I think, to try different ways of delivering professional development, both in a synchronous and asynchronous way, blended approach to learning. So some online learning complemented with some face-to-face. I think that school leaders and teachers are absolutely on their knees though. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. I think that they have worked incredibly, insanely hard actually. I don't even think incredibly does it justice to meet the challenges of the pandemic, but also challenges that came out of evolving government policy because obviously government was trying to better understand the needs of schools and how to support students. I think there were lots of things that we tried that didn't necessarily work you know, huge need for agility, uh, resilience. Um, but the challenge is, is that education very rarely gets a break. So the pandemic might be um, not as intense as it was, um, but, you know, there's always something. And I think that for schools in particular, as services have decreased mm. in this country and the community, then schools have had to take on much more responsibility. Um, so... In terms of professional learning, then, I think it's an opportunity for us to really think innovatively about professional development delivery, um, to recognise that actually the learning environment online is very different from a learning environment in a face-to-face -face context. So we need to be very intentional with the way that we set that up so that we're not just bringing people together on a Zoom or on Teams or Google Classroom and just expecting it to be exactly the same as if people were working together in a, in a room. Recognizing that contracting virtually is really important because you can have, you know, you can feel very exposed online because you can see yourself and you can see others. You wouldn't have that in a, if you were working with teachers in a face-to-face -face physical environment, you're not aware of yourself as much, are you? Because you're not, you can't see yourself. So all sorts of things to consider, but I would say definitely lots of 
options have opened up now that will enable us to work more cohesively together across the country in a way that we weren't able to before. Yeah. And you may have answered part of this question um, in your last response, but are you, uh, do you think we will learn these lessons or do you think we will spring back to old habits? I think that's the challenge for the education sector. Um, it's always a challenge because, as I said before, so many things are happening constantly um, that teachers and leaders have to then go on to the next thing and they don't necessarily have time to be able to really reflect on um, what they were doing, what worked, what didn't work. We just sort of have to go on to the next thing. It could be new targets that have been set nationally. Um, you know, there's a whole range of different things that teachers and leaders have to respond to. And I think that unless time is given for people to be able to intentionally reflect upon um, practice and what's worked and what hasn't, then there is a danger of us just falling back to old patterns of behaviour. I know that a lot of schools now are considering online parents' evenings because that's definitely been a success yeah. people have felt from the pandemic. Actually, it's much more helpful for parents and carers to be able to do these meetings online, saves them having to come to school, leave work, etc. And in some ways, that's opened up the discourse and the opportunity to build relationships with parents, carers and the wider community. So I think that's a really good thing that I would hope would uh, carry on. Um, but yes, in terms of blended approaches to learning, I think that we ended up having to just, there wasn't a period to test these things to see how they would work together. We just had to go straight into implementation. And some of those things now will need to be de-implemented because they haven't quite led to uh, the impact that we desired. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, I mean, we have to be confident, don't we? Otherwise we're an optimistic. Otherwise I think we're in the, the wrong profession um oh, yeah what's a a specific um uh, issue or problem that you are currently looking at with teaching school hubs um great question okay so one of the biggest challenges for us at the moment is trying to meet teachers where they are recognizing that a lot of teachers and leaders who uh the national programs are aimed at are already uh tired they've already got really busy timetables so the new national suite takes a blended approach to learning which combines both virtual online learning with some face-to-face -face sessions to try and help teachers and leaders to access these around their busy timetables but there's still a lot of thought that needs to go into actually how we do that and how we encourage schools to see that we're not just paying lip service to wanting to support with workload and well-being but actually that's been fundamental to the design and delivery and, and the design of the delivery if you like of the the national suite and I think another challenge is in really understanding need. So I would say in England, we are awash now with professional learning and development to the point where there are so many organizations within the sector doing some fantastic work, really trying to look at how they can develop teacher and leadership expertise. But the challenge is now that it can feel sometimes like an all-you-can-eat buffet. And I don't know about you, but an all-you-can-eat all buffet just means you have random things on your plate and you can go home feeling pretty full, not so great. Um, and I think we need to be really careful that we are still intentional about accessing the professional learning development that's going to help to mitigate against a particular need rather than just 
clinging on or grabbing on to something yeah. because this is a prominent person speaking on Twitter or this organization is doing some stuff that looks good. Um, you know, really understanding what the needs are and really making sure that there are the enabling conditions then in school culture and environment that means that teachers and leaders can practice these deliberately practice this yeah. in their school environment because otherwise there's a danger of us now having so much fantastic professional development out there that we then are accessing lots of things but we're not then given the time or the yeah. thought or consideration or planning to deliberately practice that in school environment so yet again we just grab all this cpd it goes in our cpd treasure box and that goes somewhere under the bed or in the cupboard and we might we may or may not bring it out at different points so connection cohesion um yes yeah, really really important to the work that the teaching school hubs are doing we don't just want to deliver programs uh in a scattergun approach we want to be very intentional that the right people are going on the right programs with the right support and follow-up afterwards yeah and and what just out of interest what's the the process of um currently in the uk um, of identifying professional learning needs and monitoring monitoring and reflecting on that i know in australia we have the Australian Professional Teaching Standards, and then we have professional learning that is aligned to that. And we have a mandatory component um, and also a self-identified component. Do you have something like that um, uh, in terms of how you track that professional learning in the UK? So it sounds like you're probably further ahead than we are in many respects. So we have the National Teacher Standards um, in England. We also have the Teacher Standards for Professional Development. So the Teacher Standards outline the knowledge, the behaviours um, that all teachers need to um, adhere to and cover all sorts of things from classroom instruction, curriculum, special educational needs, etc. behaviour. And the, profession, the Teacher's Professional Standards then outline uh, well, at the time they were written in 2016, the leading research into effective professional development, but we've since had the EF's report, which has uh, moved on from that now. So it's not that they're irrelevant, but everything needs updating. Um, and we now have the early career framework in England, uh, which the early career framework and the core content framework. So these are two really important frameworks from the beginning of initial teacher training that uh, outline, codify the core knowledge that um, initial teacher training and early career teachers need to develop and the core activities, if you like, that the skills that they also need to um, develop. And I think in terms of need analysis, then we are probably in a situation where we've got different schools doing different things. I think that surveys, questionnaires remain the most common approach to need analysis. Um, but then there's not necessarily robust benchmarking to identify uh, how that need compares to national standards. So it's definitely an area of work that for us as the Teaching School yeah. Hub Council, um, we are keen to develop. We've just been working with hubs this year, actually, as they've been putting together their year two CPD plans to um, demonstrate different ways that they can carry out need analysis in their local areas and then test them. So linking up with other local stakeholders, testing the assumptions they have about needs and being able to triangulate that with teacher surveys, um conversations you know national standards so sounds like you're further ahead than we are but i think if we were to use 
you know, a Thomas Gesky approach to evaluating the impact of professional development, everything must start with that need and understanding it and then working backwards to design professional development or select professional development that's going to help solve that need or mitigate against that problem. Yeah, really interesting. And that obviously that wasn't a question that I sent through to you. It's just it's just fascinating to see the different approaches. And um, I, I'm, I feel really fortunate to have that very concrete process um, in Australia. We have the Australian professional standards um, and then we also have um, professional learning that's very clearly linked to those standards. And then you have different career progressions. So a graduate a proficient, a proficient, sorry, graduate teacher, proficient teacher highly accomplished teacher and then a lead teacher accreditation which is the one that I'm currently working on and that is looking at um, going back to the, that triangulating of data and evidence based on those standards and so you might have um, you've got aspects that you have to reflect upon you can uh, interview other people you can take uh, photographs of great or recordings of great practice and so it's a really collaborative approach I'll, I'll send you just as a point of interest I'll send you all of that um, information oh, to have to look at but it, it's really interesting I think to see how other people do that um, I was having a conversation with a colleague in the states um, a little while ago and they were saying that in every state in America there was a different approach to professional learning and teacher accreditation which seems immense when you consider the number of states they are um, in America yeah. so um, is it um, nationally based standards or do you have county interpretations of these standards or how, how does it work specifically? So um, national standards, definitely. And it's worth saying now that the professional development suite that I work with and Hubs implement is known as the golden thread of teacher and leader professional development. So it sounds as if it is actually more similar perhaps to what you're doing mm -hmm. than I realized. So the core content framework and early career framework are definitely those benchmarks that uh, trainee teachers and early career teachers work towards. And then if you are a teacher who's been working for five, six, seven years, you've got the opportunity to do one of the national um, professional qualifications, and that's a specialist qualification. And we've got specialist qualifications now in leading teacher development, leading wow. teaching, leading behaviour and culture, leading early years, leading literacy, etc. And there's a couple of more on the horizon. If you and, and there for teachers who uh, want to have that leadership experience, but in a specialist area. So it's not about any more leaving the classroom to take on more leadership responsibility. Teachers can stay in the classroom, further develop their craft of teaching alongside developing the craft of teaching right. with their peers, their colleagues. If then you are interested in doing a more traditional leadership group then you've got your senior leadership qualification headship and exec leadership um, so that's the suite of national programs and then obviously you could argue there are some um, not gaps as such but you know you might not always want to do them so they can be complemented by other really well respected programs perhaps from the education endowment um, or you know programs that have been internally designed based on a really robust need analysis but as I said before that robust need analysis is still there definitely um, a significant challenge. Yeah, fascinating. I always, maybe it's the inner educational nerd in me, but I love finding out how we train teachers in different contexts. Yeah. It's really, uh, really important. And just in closing, um, I want to be respectful uh, of your time, Catherine. I'm hugely grateful that you would talk to me today. I was just wondering if you had any advice um, uh, for people that were right at the beginning uh, of their teaching career. 
Okay, so thinking about our conversation so far and some of the mistakes I felt that I made as a, you know, an early career teacher, teacher, I think it's really important to recognize and understand that teaching is complex. Um, it needs to be developed over time, that actually learning the craft of teaching requires you to make mistakes in some respects so that you can learn and adapt your teaching expertise and then it's not linear. So like learning in the classroom isn't linear. There are, there are going to be peaks and troughs. But I think that many teachers um, are really hard on themselves because we know it's high stakes because we've got a class of 30 children in front of us who've got that one shot at learning. So we almost can't afford to make mistakes. Um, but it's inevitable that they're going to happen because that's what we know about how we develop teacher expertise. But I think it's not being fearful of those moments, recognize that it's an opportunity to develop your craft of teaching, to make sure then that you've got the support of peers, colleagues in your schools. And I couldn't recommend enough seeking out a coach. I think that coaching is so important to how we develop teacher expertise, having someone in your school that can support you with a variety of coaching models. Um, it might be that you have instructional coaching, it might be that you have more traditional coaching where you're just able to uh, talk through um, an aspect of your practice that's uh, not necessarily focused specifically in the classroom, but it could be around your uh, behavior management. Obviously, that's in the classroom. But what I mean is sometimes there are more holistic elements to the work that we do as a class teacher, even in the way that we might conduct conversations with parents and carers and work with the wider community, you know, having support with how we might deliver a staff meeting or something like that. So instructional coaching in the classroom, fantastic, but perhaps other types of conversations can help you then to develop your craft of not just being a teacher in the classroom, but actually an educator in a school. So yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think being kind to yourself, recognizing that it takes years and years and years to develop your teaching craft. And if there's one thing that I constantly worry about at the moment, it's that I'm not currently in the classroom. And I think that um, having that uh, credibility with your peers, if you work in teacher education and leadership is really important. Mm -hmm. I think that there is definitely a place for people to be outside of the classroom and understanding teacher and leadership education, but we must never forget just how much respect those people doing the doing and still in the classroom uh, deserve. And that's something that I always try and make sure when I'm delivering professional development, that I'm respectful of those people who are doing the doing at the moment. And I'm not somebody who's read a variety of books and is just telling them what to do without any understanding of having done it myself. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that is a wonderful place to draw our discussion to a conclusion. And my final question uh, is, where can people find out more about the amazing work that you're doing? Um, so I'm on Twitter at Catherine Morgan underscore two. Um, and also you can find out more about the Teaching School Hub Council um, from our website. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, although I need to update my profile. Um, but yeah, they're probably the main places um, that you can uh, find out more about the work that we're doing in England with the Teaching School Hubs Council. Fantastic. And I'll make sure I put all of the uh, information that we talked about in this episode and all the links to your various profiles in our show notes. But um, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, my hope is that uh, the teachers that are listening to this episode will really get something out of it and the importance of uh, professional learning and professional networks. But 
Um, I'm incredibly grateful for what you are uh, investing into our profession, uh, even though it's uh, from a long way away over in the UK. Uh, but thank you for everything that you're doing. It has been wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matthew. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we can continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode. Music.